Loading the Marvel Handbook, the unofficial podcast of their universe, 1983 first edition. Initializing episode 1, from Abomination to El Aguila. Flame on. I ain't a brain dead hunk of muscle no more, Banner. And I'm ready for a green on green rematch. Abomination. Real name, Michael Bailey. Occupation, titular host of the Fortress of Bellitude Podcasting Network. Legal status, United States citizen with no criminal record. Identity, publicly known. Base of operations, views from the long box. Georgia. The Abomination is kind of an interesting character to me because, one, he has one of the worst Silver Age origin stories. It starts off okay. He's this Russian spy that gets irradiated and he's stronger than the Hulk. That was his hook. But he's defeated because a cosmic being just takes him away. It's not like the Hulk wins. It's really disappointing. So for me, with the Abomination, it's always what came later. Peter David brought him in during Countdown. He shows up and he sees Bruce Banner and he's trying to get Bruce Banner to change into the Hulk because all he wants to do is fight the Hulk. He won't because this is when he was Joe Fixit at night. So the Abomination throws Bruce Banner into a radiation thing makes the Hulk come out. I really get the sense that Peter David was using the abomination in that story to deal with all the people that were at him to make the Hulk more like it was before. Because there's a moment where the Abomination goes, man, you were brainless and just hit people. God, I missed that. Yeah, I know you're shocked. Peter David doing metatextual stuff in his work. That's when he got the additional deformity. He got exposed to nuclear waste or something? Yeah, the Hulk hits him with radioactive waste and actually says the joke, you've been wasted. And then the next time he shows up is during the Infinity Gauntlet? Yes. Because the Hulk shrinks down and he starts to talking into like the ear of the abomination and does a real genius joke, which is one of those things that stands out because who in the 90s really talked about real genius as a film? I don't think people talk about it now enough because I think it's actually a hysterical movie. But he was kind of a comedic figure in David's run. I don't know how I feel about that because on one hand, it's not like I have the love or an affection for the abomination like I do for other evil opposites because let's face it, he is another radioactive figure that's really strong and green but he doesn't change back and he's got two toes. Though theoretically, if you look at some Silver Age artwork with the Hulk, he's only got two toes, but that's entirely beside the point. The next time you see him is right at the end of Peter David's run. He is the one that is responsible for Betty Banner's death. So when you get into Paul Jenkins' run of the Hulk and you have the big rematch in Incredible Hulk number 25 drawn by J.R.J.R., it's very visceral. The Abomination has gone from being 
a figure of comedy that Peter David used for social commentary or metatextual commentary to he's the man that killed the Hulk's wife. And Jenkins does this thing at the end of the story where Bruce Banner basically traps him into watching home movies of when he had a normal life. And that is the abomination's hell, which is really have you, Did you ever read the Paul Jenkins run of the Hulk? No, I sure didn't. Although Mr. Fixit's a fan. I spoke to Paul Jenkins at a convention and I asked him, I go, what was it like coming onto the Hulk when you did? I mean, like you're following Peter David and he stopped me, you know, in a friendly way because Paul Jenkins is actually a really super nice guy to talk to. He goes, no, I followed John Byrne. I had it easy. John <laughs> Byrne had to follow Peter David. I didn't have to follow Peter David. I had to follow John Byrne and that was a lot easier to look good, <laughs> which is true. Those six issues just aren't all that good. Well, I think, didn't Joe Casey have a run ahead of that even? Yeah, he finished out the original numbering. I have never read them. I was really mad when Peter David left that book, actually, because it had only been a year since I started picking up his run of the Hulk. The year before he leaves, I decide, okay, I'm finally going to collect the Hulk because I like Peter David and I've bought all the pack issues and I've read them and I'm ready. What do you mean you're leaving? <laughs> you're it's, jumping it's on like, with year 11. The Jenkins run is actually really good because he goes back into the thing that you really wouldn't do today. You wouldn't talk about multiple personality disorders now because that's now not something that is a thing. It's, I think dissociative disorder, identity disorder. I think that's what they call it now. But he leaned into that and brought back Joe Fixit and the Professor Hulk. He's actually the one that defined the Professor Hulk as a separate alter, which I still have philosophical differences with. He brought in the abomination and had the mindless fight. But like I said, he ended it on this really tragic note that the hell of the abomination is not losing in a fight with the Hulk. It's the fact that now he's trapped and all he experiences is the one time he was happy and he knows he will never have that. And I'm like, that's messed up, but in all the right ways. Mm -hmm. And so the next time I saw him was during Bruce Jones's run. People don't talk about it anymore, but that was a sea change for the Hulk when he first came on that book. That was like a big deal. I remember talking to him. He goes, it's really funny being in year 20 of my career and Wizard Magazine just named me one of the best new writers uh, in comics right now. But he dealt with the abomination in a storyline that was really messed up because Bruce is on the run during the entirety of the Bruce Jones run. And he comes across this woman who seduces him. And it turns out to be the abomination's wife. During the course of it, you learn that he abused her in Russia. Sometimes writers, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, will bring up an issue like that. And it feels like they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. They're using it as a straw man tactic where you want to hit the villain because he hits his wife and you're not dealing with domestic abuse. You're just using it as a crutch to a certain extent, identity crisis in, in a lot of ways. So on one hand, it feels weird because it feels like it's there as a natural outlet for the characters. But Bruce Jones's run was the X-Files meets the Hulk anyways. So it felt really real world. The Hulk at that point was considered part of Marvel Knights when that was the thing. So really after that, the Abomination is killed by Red Hulk in the first issue of the Red Hulk series. We now know 
know that it was General Thunderbolt Ross was the first Red Hulk because I found out there was a second Red Hulk and boy did that confuse the clobber out of me. I just found that out as you spoke. Yeah, <laughs> there was a Red Hulk running around for a while that wasn't Thunderbolt Ross. Shows how much I pay attention to it. So in the comics, he's been mostly dead, only showing up every once in a while. I think the reason the Abomination probably sticks out in people's minds and then only to a certain extent is he was the villain in The Incredible Hulk, the 2008 film. You couldn't really make him a Russian spot in 2008. That, that really doesn't work. So the idea that he's Russian, but he was raised in England is a great way to keep the name Emil Blonsky, but have a completely different character. But really, at the end, he's just the big thing for the Hulk to fight. It's a little disappointing that we never see him again. But at the same time, I can kind of see where he doesn't need to come back. I can't help but like this character. My one problem, and especially looking at this entry, I really hate his face. The ears look ridiculous to me. I know that's part of him, so I have to accept it. But that's my one criticism of the character. He's kind of a blob of nothing in the movie. This deformed guy with haunches. Other than that, he is a character I love, and yet not a character that really has to have a major comeback either, if that makes any sense. In the official handbook, I know the main image is burned, but are those two other abomination shots? Those aren't burned, are they? Are they from the Gil Kane? I'm pretty sure the inset that's referenced from a published comic is a Gil Kane. It, that's definitely a Gil Kane face on the woman that he's carrying. But the actual entry art is by Ron Wilson, who of course owed oh. a debt to John Byrne and, and worked with him extensively on the 2-in-1 and the Thing spinoff series. I think Ron Wilson clearly was referencing Gil Kane in how he drew the abomination face, but the body very much recalls John Byrne. I will admit that I had mixed it up with the deluxe edition where Byrne did the main image, so that's why I was a little screwed up there. And really, as opposed to the later editions, you don't have a whole lot of information here. But, you know, as a communist spy at Gamma Base in New Mexico, Blancy activated Dr. Robert Bruce Banner's gamma ray machine and bombarded himself with a greater dose of gamma rays than that which transformed Banner into the Hulk. That's all you really need to know. But yeah, that definitely looks like Gil Kane on the inset. I like this entry because I like the character. I do feel like the abomination in the image kind of looks like he's really mad about something. He doesn't look scary. He just looks like he's ticked off because he's watched the news and something some political figure did made him mad. The abomination after he's watched Fox News for about an hour. He's Emil Blonsky, so that might actually be something to tame him. <laughs> Well played, sir. <laughs> I was thinking maybe he was really upset that Etrigan stole his basic look. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, I'll go with that, too. All you did was put on a cape, you hack. <laughs> you just turned down the tent. <laughs> He really does have a simple costume, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. He's just got Speedos. That's it. That's all he really needs. So do you really want to see the abomination in a costume? I mean, no, no, no. I was just going to agree with you that when I was a kid, just reading random Hulk comics that came my way, and honestly, I wasn't a big fan of the Hulk until the Peter David run. It was the leader in Abomination, really. For the most part, those would have been the only ones I'd name. And again, it's because Abomination is the evil opposite of the Hulk. So it's just a simple equation there. It's the mirror image. I always knew the Abomination was was supposed to be stronger than the Hulk and I knew that he always lost to the Hulk and it makes you wonder maybe these guys are villains because of the lack of follow through despite having more raw power than the Hulk supposedly he doesn't get the matter I get the stronger I get where Bruce does do that despite having a higher baseline than the Hulk has because he doesn't have that drive because he's the bad guy and he's already got more power than most people he never strives and so he never overcomes and besides the evil acts part of what makes him a villain rather than a hero is he 
doesn't level up. He can't overcome the way that the Hulk can. And to be fair, I think the uh, he's stronger than the Hulk was just a contrivance that Lee came up with to make him an interesting villain in his first appearance. But because again, but something about first... that stuck because maybe it was Ohatmu. I don't know. But my awareness of Abomination is tied to an awareness that he's supposed to be stronger than the Hulk. No, I, I, I'm not saying it's not something that's stuck. My point is, is I think it was the creation of it was to have a hook for Lee to write the character, which is why it's, it's 90 and then 91 that his first and second appearance because of, of how the serialized nature of Tales to Astonish. He's taken away by a cosmic level character because Lee wrote himself into a corner that if this guy's stronger than the Hulk, how's he going to get out of it? Whereas other writers created different versions like Peter David has the Hulk hit him with toxic waste. So you kind of have a RoboCop type situation where he's the kid from Famed and explodes when a car hits him. Or Toxic Avenger too. You know, I've never seen any of those. Really? Okay. Since Toxic Avenger works in a continuum not dissimilar from the Hulks, I'm wondering if there was a parallel drawn there too. I can see Peter David being a fan of the Toxic Avenger. Oh, absolutely. I, I can see Peter David having written one of the sequels for all I know. He worked for Full Moon for a while there, so it wouldn't shock me the say, least. He wrote two of the Trancers films. So. And Oblivion. He, I think he did several Oblivion movies. But also, I think that the Toxic Waste helped to set up the whole Phantom of the Opera riff that he tried during mm-hmm. Infinity Gauntlet too. Because he also, I guess, felt conscious about the Finney years and wanted to do something about that. And then they leaned more into the scarred toxic deformity. Yeah, and he was in a trench coat and a hat. Uh, you know, Dale Keown was drawing it, so it was going to look good no matter what. That's what got oh. me onto the Hulk, to be honest with you, is I specifically saw, I don't remember if it was the first or the second part of that two-parter. The flea market was closed, and I wanted to buy a comic, and I went to the 7-Eleven that was over by the comic shop I was going to. I saw it, and I flipped through it. It's like, man, this art's really cool, and I've been hearing good things about the Hulk. So Abomination and Dale Keown's rendition of the character was part of what got me to reading the Hulk for, I guess, about a better part of a decade. Yeah, let's be fair. Peter David lucked out in terms of artists for the at least the first two-thirds of his run. Because you go from McFarlane to Jeff Purvis, who had a, at least a very distinctive style, not as illustrative. I'm not a fan of it, but I like it anyways, because I realize that artistically it's really good. But then he gets Keown, followed by Gary Frank. So it's like this murderer's row of people. It's like the only hiccup in that whole thing was Angel Medina. Uh, well, I wasn't a fan of his take on the Hulk because of the whole needle nose thing, but it, he was a guy who people always thought was going to be bigger than he ever got to be. To get an artist of Angel Medina's caliber at a time where everybody was getting hired away to work for the indies or the next hot project was also a coup unto itself. Okay, that's a very good point. His hand seems to draw strength from the wall itself, absorbing its very substance. Tis you whom Loki sent. Yeah, I'm gonna smash you, punk. And the same goes for you. Again and again, Thor dodges the absorbing man's crushing blows. How can the son of Odin battle this invincible menace? Hey everybody, this is Dr. Ange. I'm at Dr. Ange70 on Twitter, and I'm really more of a DC guy than a Marvel guy. I run a fan site called Supergirl Comic Box Commentary, where I talk about Supergirl and all of the Superman books, and usually a little bit of Legion of Superheroes as well. I have a little bit of a Marvel background, and so I was delighted when Frank asked me to join the show, and I'm here to talk to you about my favorite Marvel characters. Of course, your number one favorite is going to be Absorbing Man. Actually, uh, it's not my number one, but... uh, 
but he is definitely one of my faves. What I can tell you about him is that I've always been fascinated about the fact that he loves to carry around that chain and ball. That's very old school and probably anachronistic. I don't know if necessarily prisoners still have the ball and chain attached to them, although my interaction with the prison system is relatively low and mostly through Hollywood. The thing that I can tell you about him is that, again, I had fewer Marvel books in my youth than I did DC. I've always been a DC guy. Whenever I have books that really strike me, they're indelibly in my head, especially from Marvel, because there were just fewer of them. So there was an issue of the Hulk where I first met the Absorbing Man, where they give a little bit of a brief intro of his powers, and he's in a prison where they've actually lined the entire prison cell with cardboard, because they said all he can touch is cardboard, and you don't get any powers from cardboard. So he's stuck there as himself, but then there is a slight leak in one of the pipes in his cell behind the cardboard, so water comes in, and then he can touch the water, turns into water, seeps out of the walls, and then is free. I thought that whole thing was fascinating. As a kid, I was just fascinated with the idea of cardboard man really can't do anything. And then in that adventure, of course, he unfortunately runs into the Hulk, decides he's going to brawl with the Hulk, their enemies, and touches the Hulk, and really absorbs the Hulk's energy. So at one point, he is hulking green, absorbing man, and is really unbelievably powerful, the two brawl, but absorbing man Hulk is stronger than Banner Hulk. He actually wins, and unfortunately, that derails him, because when he defeats the Hulk, the Hulk, unconscious, turns back into Banner, he turns back into Creel and becomes a human again, and then is overwhelmed by local police force and gas, I think. A great way to get a good encapsulation of him as a character. He can't really absorb cardboard and do anything. Water, by the way, has a lot of properties that's helpful to him. And then he can really become all-powerful. I've become a fan of him because of that issue, and you start to read these other things. He touches concrete, he touches steel, he touches the Uru hammer, becomes Uru for a while. All of that stuff is really wonderful to me. So he's really a fascinating character to me that I just always loved the way that he can apply his powers. It's kind of a get-out-of-jail-free. I don't quite know whether or not he could touch air and just sort of disappear like Metamorpho, but in theory he could. The artwork in this page is him without a shirt, in standard pants, holding his ball and chain. I think it's a good representation of him. I always consider him more a Hulk foe than a Thor foe because I first met him in that Hulk issue, although I know that his power derives from Loki. I just love Crusher Creel. He's pretty cool. Crusher Creel is a great name. If you're going to have to have a real person named Carl Creel works well too. I think that maybe he's running around with the ball and chain. He's like one of those dudes never not having a weight. He probably drinks a lot of whey protein and stuff. I tend to look at him as a Hulk foe as well. Maybe he transitioned at some point in the 70s or 80s. Between Secret Wars and reading the Peter David run and seeing him more often there and really not being a Thor guy. Yeah, I tend to think the same way. He just seems to fit a little bit better with Hulk. He's very earthly and I could see where you could get a good contrast between the divinity of Thor and his regal bearing and this common prisoner but the bare-chested brawler just feels more like Hulk's territory. Yeah, and I mean, I think the thing about him is that he seems like he's relatively dim-witted but he probably has to learn a lot about things that can help him. So, you know, I'm going to touch a diamond because diamonds are very, very tough, right? Or I'm going to touch iron because iron is going to give me more power than, let's say, sandstone. So there is that juxtaposition of a dim-witted standard professional criminal who has access to all of these crazy powers and probably has to learn a lot so that he can apply them best. If Ronnie Raymond didn't have a Professor Stein with him, in my experience, I haven't seen him be particularly dumb. He's just like a regular guy and he's not intellectually curious. So he's figured out how to work his powers at a basic level and just doesn't feel the need to explore that anymore. He's good 
good. Okay, hey, I can turn into water. I can turn into steel. What more needs to be said? That's probably as far as he's going to go with it. And that's also probably why he gets beaten because theoretically he would be one of the most powerful people in the Marvel Universe. But because he's never going to explore the limits of those powers for the most part, unless you say cut his arm off and he's going to hopefully figure out a way to reconnect to his arm. But unless you put him in a situation where he has to innovate, he's just going to, this is what I got and this is what I'm going to do. And I think that's really most people. I think that's the way it would play out for most people if they got a power set like that. Yeah, I agree. In theory, he could become metamorpho. I will keep a pouch of things around me that I can touch something that gives me certain properties that allows me to do something. And he's never going to do that. It's always like, what can I reach out and touch right now? As opposed to thinking ahead that way. And I do like the fact that the ball and chain also has the same properties as him so that the ball and chain can become diamond or have green energy over all of those things. That adds like a nice little wrinkle to it for me. Instead of some extraordinary measures, it's just they pasted cardboard to the walls of itself. You know, (laughs) it's such a low rent and it worked for the most part. Uh, I I just love and and, and, in all honesty, this is a government institution. They would absolutely find the cheapest, most basic way to route a dude like this. It's just charming how believable that is to me. Yeah. You know, and again, as a kid, when you read it, I had never met him before. And so they're talking about him sitting there and they're like powerless in his cardboard prison cell. Or maybe it was paper, but I'm pretty sure it was cardboard. And then you have to read the issue. I had to read the issue to understand what his power set is to then go back and reread and say like, oh, no wonder that this is going to work. Cardboard man can't do anything. Um, And then you would say, boy, somebody should keep an eye out and realize that a leaky pipe actually is devastating in this case because the whole point is to leave him only surrounded by cardboard. Then you start to, you know, I start to think about everything else. Like, where does he go to the bathroom? Does he have, you know, uh, he doesn't have a toilet because that would have porcelain and water. You know, how does he eat? Do they give him paper utensils or is it only finger food? You know, so once you start to think about it in its extremes, it becomes a little bit more idiotic. But, uh, <laughs> but I think that's what I loved about it. It was this cut rate way of keeping him powerless and it worked for the most part until an accident happened. I was thinking, cardboard man, cardboard man. Can't <laughs> yeah. do anything with cardboard man. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think they even had the silly thing where it was a prison window with just bars but no glass. And mm. I think that that's how maybe he seeped out through the rocks. But I'm just sort of thinking, like, you could become cardboard and, like, fold yourself up and fling yourself out the window. Instead, it was the water thing, which I think worked better. It's still imaginative. No matter how you work it out, as a kid, you're sitting there and you're thinking this through. You have more intellectual curiosity than what Sorbing Man probably has. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you, as we're talking about it, I'm recalling, because I became so enamored of him, if I saw him on a cover, I would read it. And so there was another one where I think that maybe he was thrown into water, accidentally became water, and then dissipated because he had no control in a bigger body of water, diluted himself. And I think that was another way that he got defeated, only to reintegrate himself later on. So he is cool that way. That's why I chose him. For me, I guess you had that generational shift where because I didn't read Silver Age Marvel comics, especially as a kid, I didn't gravitate toward the various reprints that Marvel had at the time. He seemed like some older generation's villain, and I wanted to have the cool, sexy, modern villains. But one way he became a little bit more relevant to me in the 80s was that after Secret Wars, he had a long-term relationship with Titania, who was introduced in that book. It was interesting to me to see him paired off with this female character who did have a lot of those qualities of the cool ladies people. She had the thigh-high boots and the spikes and everything else. And so I didn't necessarily follow Absorbing Man into titles, but I did buy a number of titles with the pair of them as like a couple. Especially for someone like him who you wouldn't necessarily think would be defined 
defined by a relationship, and especially a relationship of two people that were not necessarily equals. In a throwdown, I actually would tend to lean more toward Titania. I think it's that he was the one who just had the extraordinary power. Logically, he'd be the more powerful of the two, but Titania is the one who actually tended to seem like she had a better idea of what she wanted to do and how to accomplish her goals. You don't see that very often. Maybe Mr. Miracle and Big Barter would be another example, where a relationship defines a character so much. At least, again, in that time period when I was reading him in comics, it would actually motivate you to buy the comics for the pairing, for the couple. I thought that was cool about him as well. It's interesting. I didn't know that about Titania, but as a She-Hulk guy, it would be interesting to see the two of them take her on, because I think that she squared off with She-Hulk in the past. Either one of the two of them would be great pairing against She-Hulk. He's just fun. And I like, too, how Ron Wilson gives him a real sense of mass. This guy feels like he's just a thick wall of muscle. It's a great visual. It's such a simple design. It's just a guy in prison pants. He looks like something out of Cool Hand Luke, but it just works. You can tell this guy is somebody to be reckoned with. You know that he is the villain. The whole prisoner aspect of the character is absolutely sold in the visual, and particularly like how Ron Wilson did it. The only thing that it's making me think of, though, is I don't think I ever got to see Absorbing Man versus The Thing, especially as drawn by Ron Wilson. That would have been pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he had touched The Thing, if he would become Thing-like. You're exactly right. You know, you look at him and you say, boy, in movies, he would be the guy in the prison yard who's benching 500 pounds while all of the accountants are quivering on the bench <laughs> looking at him saying like, oh boy, you know, don't run across that guy in the wrong way. He'll take you out. He really does have that presence. And it's funny because me being me, especially when you see the rest of the characters that I'm going to talk about, I never gravitated towards these big bruisers because that's not who I am. You try to identify with people. So I think it's just his power and that cardboard prison cell that really enamored me to him. Again, the visual is strong enough. He ended up getting adapted into the TV show Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and they just had to find a big burly looking dude and it worked. That's all you needed. As long as the guy looked enough like this visual, it didn't cost anything. You just had to find a nice, well-muscled dude who had that brutish quality. You look at him and it's like, hey, that's Absorbing Man. Yeah, I have to say, I'll stand on the mountain and say Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is a pretty gosh darn good show. I've watched every season of it and I was thrilled when I saw him on there. Grandfather used to sit me on his knees and tell stories of old, of knights, of kings, of everything, of men brave and bold. The one man who stood up in my mind was so passionate to be. He tried his very best to set his people free. Hello, this is Paquita Trotamundos. I appear in a one song each B-side. You're looking at El Aguila's entry from the first volume of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. And I wanted you, if you would, to please read the section covering his origin. El Aguila is a mutant whose power surface on his meat teens. That's it. And then it mostly just goes on for paragraphs about how his powers work. I only bought one issue of the original volume of Ohatmu. What I collected as a kid was the deluxe edition. And I didn't appreciate it until we started doing this podcast that because the first edition insisted on all the characters only having one page entries and just really not knowing what they were doing when they first got started, there's a lot of entries like this where there's just nothing there unless you already know the character going in. Apparently he's from Spain. They don't go too much into his family, although they do name, you know, sisters, father, and I think 
think I read somewhere that at one point in one issue, he goes back to Spain to try to help his family. After he made something of a name for himself in the United States, his uh, cousin, I think it was, asked him to come back to help with a mutant called the Conquistador who could grow in size and could absorb natural stuff from the environment like dirt and, and trees. El Aguila is a little out of his depth, but what he managed to do is lure this guy to a windmill and then use his mutant power to shock the Conquistador until he lost his powers. It so, was in a Marvel Comics Presents story. He's on a visa here in the United States. He lives in New York. Kind of like a Robin Hood. He helps out poor people. He battles drug dealers, corrupt policemen, and all the people who take advantage of the poor. His first appearance was in Power Man, Iron Fist, number 58, in 1979. At first, Iron Fist and Power Man, I don't know too much about them. You know a little bit about Power Man. You used to watch the Luke Cage TV show and Power Man is Luke Cage. Oh, so they're good guys. They're heroes for hire. They basically work like private detectives. If you think of El Aguila, he's kind of like an outlaw. So I can see how they hire those two guys to confront him. Based on his flamboyant attitude, kind of like from the movie The Princess Bride, Ignum Montoya, real name of El Aguila is Alejandro Montoya. So he has to share the same last name as the Princess Bride guy. Yeah, I'm not sure when the book was written, so I'm not sure who came first. The movie definitely came after El Aguila, but the uh, the book may have preceded him, so maybe there was so an influence there. the dancing around and everything, because he has the sword, right? It mentions that Power Man being like a grumpy guy, kind of, you know, this guy like gets infuriated by El Aguila. And then Iron Fist, he doesn't get it. What is this guy? I mean, what is this doing? Iron Fist is more like unworldly. Like, he yeah, doesn't he know too much. He came from a place that's like... Uh, Shangri-La from The Lost Horizon where is this uh, mountain retreat that's lost in space and time where they practice cosmic martial arts and the like. He doesn't know too much about the outside world so it creates conflict. They become friends after a while. As Power Man and Iron Fist are investigating, they are on retainer by a a corrupt company and so they're compelled to. They're talking to people in the neighborhoods and they're all telling him what the great deeds he's doing and he's cleaning up the neighborhood and helping out people that are in need and stuff and so nobody wants to betray El Aguila even though nobody knows anything about him he's very mysterious ultimately what happens is Aguila appears to be trying to gather information on these corrupt businesses to bring him down and he gets a hold of a suitcase from one of the guys and he's trying to get away but he ends up running afoul of Power Man and Iron Fist he gets captured and the corrupt businessman actually wants to shoot him in the face he uses a term the initials WB that would be familiar to Latinos in this country would have nothing to do with the Spaniard I don't know what that means ah okay And that's actually printed in a Marvel comic, which is one of those weird things that happened in the 70s and 80s that you can get away with today. Power Man and Iron Fist step in to stop this murder from taking place. El Aguilar gets away. They never reveal whether or not he brought down those businesses or not. It's inferred in the story, but they never explicitly tell you that. They never really tell you his motivation. They never tell you a lot about his backstory. He's very mysterious. I suspect what happened is they probably went to his co-creator, Mary Jo Duffy, and just asked her about him, and that's how they got the information they would get in the later editions of Ohatmu. Alagila runs into Power Man and Iron Fist a few more times, and under those circumstances, since they're no longer compelled to chase after him because they're not getting paid to, even though there's still friction, particularly between Power Man and Alagila, just because of the personality conflict, they end up becoming allies because they would take part in adventures together, and that happened a few times over the course of their series. His powers, he has the ability to discharge powerful electrostatic charges generated by his own body throughout 
the conductive medium. So in this case, the conductive medium will be his sword. Although they say that his main drawback is that he needs to have metal or something conductive to release his power. Yeah, he can project the energy a good distance so long as he has a conductive medium to launch it. But he does have to have something metal. And because he's really good with the swords, he has a finite amount of power that he can discharge. And so when he runs out of juice, at least he still has a sword that he can do stuff with. Although he's not mutant strong, he's a fit guy. His body is capable of discharging a maximum of 100,000 bolts, sufficient at 10 feet to kill a man or to stun a rhinoceros. Mm -hmm. I don't know there are many rhinoceros in Spain or in New York, so it's kind of like a random animal. (laughs) I I think they chose that because of his ability to stun Power Man, who's got really dense diamond-hard skin, Uh, and therefore was able to to knock him down even though he's so powerful. So I think that was just a way of communicating that in a more universal terms. What do you think of the character's design and his color scheme? it's pretty good it has an eagle symbol on his chest so it's not too much like impressive or anything I mean and he has a mask it's pretty much like El Zorro and uh, although it doesn't show it too much I think he has a hat like El Zorro as well on, on occasion bag. it seems like some of an affectation because you don't see him wear the hat very often I mean he, he's too acrobatic the way he moves he couldn't keep a hat on very well anyway I know but yeah. I think that was just another element borrowed from Zorro that doesn't have practical application for the character as used very uh, Spanier from the 1800s from the 1700s caricature of how they supposed to look mm-hmm. so yeah it's not which, which it's not actually, pretty impressive yeah that's that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about is going into looking at this character this is one of the few semi-prominent Hispanic characters to appear in Marvel Comics in the late 70s and 80s there's a lot of stereotypical stuff tied into that I mean Zorro wasn't created by a Spanish person he was created by a white guy here in the States mm-hmm. coming at this with the recognition that this is one of the few Hispanic characters that Marvel had in a certain day and age I mean, how do you feel about this guy? Does he, did you like him representing for Latinos or is it sort of like too much of a cliche? What do you think? I've seen it worse. At least it's not a, like a luchador or that, those type of cliche. Like, I'm going to eat so much beans and that's my superpower. You know, like Popeye's instead of like, right. you know, <laughs> Yeah. It's not too cliche because it is just too copycat of El Zorro. I don't know when El Zorro was created. I oh, think it was like, like 19-teens, 1920s, and like that. Yeah, it- so it is not like, oh my God, this is so original, but also didn't feel like it's such a cliche. It- so I'll give you a little bit of backstory on the creation of the character. Mary Jo Duffy had been a fan of comics. She got into them, I think, when she was in college as a way of unwinding. I think she read a bunch of her brother's books on a, uh, a school break and just helped her unwind uh, during studies, and she became a real fan, particularly of Chris Claremont's X-Men, but also a variety of other books. And she worked in the fan press, which helped her to transition to an editorial role at Marvel Comics. Ultimately, she wanted to write, so they gave her basically the worst-selling book, a book that was recently created out of taking two books that had small followings that couldn't support a title and smooshing them together, even though they didn't necessarily fit well together. People hadn't yet figured out what to do with those two characters, and she got into their heads and determined why they would have a partnership and how that would work, played to it, and ended up making the book somewhat popular. This was one of the earliest characters she created. It was only the first villain she had created for the series. And she wanted to have somebody who could play off of both Luke's and Danny's personalities. And so she'd come up with the basic plot of this Robin Hood character and the, and the circumstance of why Power Man and Iron Fist would be conflicted about going after him. But she didn't have the actual character. She was discussing this with famous X-Men designer Dave Cockrum. And he whipped out a sketchbook and showed her an idea he had for a Zorro type character. And so she married her Robin Hood idea with Cockrum's Zorro idea. 
played him as this cavalier ladies man even though I can definitely see that he's tropey when you read the stories I think you would actually like him because he's very noble it's unfortunate because they don't develop his character well enough to know much about his motivations they've alluded to him being very poor in Spain he develops the mutant powers he somehow ends up in the United States and he uses those limited mutant powers to help people in one particular story in Marvel fanfare he goes against Hawkeye who you're familiar with Mm -hmm. and Hawkeye was no longer Avenger at the time so he was selling his services as a security guard for high-tech organizations. El Aguila goes in there and he's trying to stop a device, one of those situations where a scientist has created something that is extremely dangerous, but very potent weapon, and then doesn't want anything to do with it, wants to stop it from being in existence, but the money men won't let him because they see the value in the weapon. And so it's him going back and forth with Hawkeye, leading Hawkeye by the nose. Every time Hawkeye thinks he's got it over on El Aguila, it turns out that he was being manipulated and he was just one step ahead of him the whole time. And his whole thing is he's trying to get to this doomsday device in the security compound and to destroy it so it isn't used against innocent people. And he shames Hawkeye throughout this by him supposedly being in this Avenger, this great hero who's defending this clearly corrupt organization. The boss of this place once again uses that particular incorrectly applied Latin slur in a comic with the seeming intent of perhaps murdering this guy. He outsmarts him because they end up getting in the process of trying to kill him. They put El Aguila in the room with the device. He proceeds to beat Hawkeye with his own sleeping gas arrow, destroy the device and escape and leave Hawkeye questioning his value as a hero if this is the way, <laughs> what it's come to. I want Marvel to have better Latin representation and I don't necessarily want them to go towards so many stereotypes. This guy's basically puss in boots you know, from Shrek except as a human but he's actually a really good guy. He's actually a very sterling hero. You can do a lot worse. So uh, what do you think about the art in general though? The art? I don't have any comments actually. If, if you look at the two entries they're both very similar and they're both by the same artist and the only assumption I can come to is that because they wanted to squeeze everything onto one page and there was a lot of text that they manipulated Aguilar's arm in such a way that it looks really awkward and I, I think that perhaps Cockrum didn't like how that looked and wanted to redraw it so that his positioning would be more natural but I think he loses something of that dashing devil may care attitude being revised in the later edition one of the things that I would say about the art the one that caught my eyes the first thing I saw was a smile yeah. <laughs> oh big teeth huge mouth unreserved happiness yes exactly. joy in what he does yeah. yes one thing that was funny too in that Marvel Comics Presents story we talked about where he goes back to Spain I don't know about Spanish humor I know a little bit about Mexican humor especially from you and the whole story is about taking the stuffing out of El Aguila his family members were like you're, you're running around you're an American superhero now you're in this ridiculous costume and they're mocking him and then he kind of comes back to them as well like sniping at each other yeah that's pretty much what we do all the time you know they were mentioned that, that he was depowered by the M-Day but is still considered a potential recruit. I don't know what that means. Anything that was a mutant back in the 80s was lucrative for Marvel. And so you got poor Aguila, who is a mutant, they say right there in the entry, although I don't, don't think he ever actually said in the comic books. He never has anything to do with the X-Men. They never do anything to exploit that mutant power. And it seems like one of the only times it comes up is after an event in the 2000s, most of the mutants on the planet Earth lost their abilities. The one time they want to talk about him being a mutant is when he doesn't have his powers anymore. Even without powers, I think that he's definitely smarter than Hawkeye and might be able to take him in a fight as well. I'm not so sure about that because the archery definitely comes in handy and I don't think that Hawkeye was going full on against the guy when they tangled, mm-hmm. but he held his own pretty well. He couldn't handle his own at all against Iron Fist, though Iron Fist trashed him even with powers. He actually fought Sabretooth and his then partner, the Constrictor, in the early days before Sabretooth was a popular character. Then they never do anything with it in any later stories. 
All right, we'll finish out this episode, beginning our indexing of the aliens of the Marvel Universe, at the beginning with the Akon. They appear very squat in the cute entry art by Patty Cockrum, but they're actually average human height. Otherwise, it's a fair rendition of the canary yellow-skinned race, who have only nostrils without bridges, and seem to uniformly have longish, dark Conan hair. They wear reddish-brown armor and speak an odd, disorganized syntax, sort of a Yoda light, but more irritating than amusing. They debuted in 1968's Captain Marvel No. 8 by Arnold Drake and Don Heck. A group of traders had engine failure and stalled out their spaceship near and the unwanted presence of their mortal enemies, the Kree. Sure enough, Colonel John Raj saw this easy prey as an opportunity for glory, even as Captain Marvel protested that engagement would compromise their greater mission on Earth. The Kree attacked, and Jan Raj refused to speak with the Akon when they requested dialogue, accepting only their absolute surrender. Ron Raj was then taken out by a laser blast, and it was left to Marvel to push back their counteroffensive and save his commander. The Kree retreated, and later the Akon sought out Captain Marvel to avenge his killing of their own commander. Marvel cunningly pitted the Akon against another of his enemies the Lord of Automaton Cyberex, and they destroyed each other. A few years later, the Akon were among the races who joined Thanos' Space Raiders in a planet assault on Earth, which was routed by Captain Marvel and the Avengers in a classic storyline by Jim Starlin. In 1995, the Akon figured prominently in another plot to destroy Earth, this time by Bomb, in the Death Storm story arc. Their aspirations were halted by Nova the Human Rocket, aided by the New Warriors. Finally, in the year 2000, the Akon cameoed in the Maximum Security event, where it was shown that their civilization had been revitalized through education by the alien rule. All characters and concepts appearing in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and the distinct likenesses thereof are the trademark and copyright of Marvel Entertainment, LLC, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. This has been a not-for-profit fan production from Rolled Spine Podcasts, with any copyrighted materials presented herein presumed covered under fair use, with no infringement intended.